listening to the Sly Dog Music Cast. Now here's your host, the Sly Dog. Hello and welcome to the Sly Dog Music Cast. I'm your host, the Sly Dog, and I'm here at the top of the episode to fill you in about what we're be- we'll be doing this month here in the month of September. So uh, a little over a month ago now, I attended uh, Nashville Rock and Pod. Uh, that was a blast. You know, Rock and Pod's something I've heard about for years, and I think, you know, Chris of Decibel Geek does puts on a great you know, convention for podcasters and rock fans. And this was the first year I went and it was a lot of fun for me. I got to interview a lot of cool people. So I'm taking the interviews I did there and I'm kind of breaking them out and giving them all, putting them all out there as mini-sodes this month. So they're shorter interviews, a little shorter than my traditional ones. Um, So I'm going to be kind of putting them out piecemeal style. Uh, I'm going to, I'm thinking about two a week, uh, depending on the quality of some of them. Some of them unfortunately already have been axed because uh due to less than optimal recording uh environment conditions but that's beside the point you know stuff happens sometimes and it was my first time going and um some of it ended up being a learning experience now that i listen back to these but uh i'm proud of a lot of these interviews i did and this first one i'm pleased to present to you is with uh walter egan walter egan's uh interesting figure in the music industry he he's kind of a Known for his one big hit, uh, Magnet and Steel, great soft rock song, and you can hear it on Yacht Rock Station and stuff. But he's been in bands like, you know, he, he was in Spirit, and uh, he, he's just played with a lot of different people in the industry. And you'll hear, me, you'll, hear, you'll hear us talk about that in this interview. He's a very interesting guy. We had a lot of fun talking to each other. And uh, he also has a new album out this year called Fascination. Uh, I think you all should go check it out. It's a great record, and I'm putting a song from it at the end of this episode. So the first uh, installment of these Rock and Pod minisodes is my interview with Walter Egan. Here it is. Check it out uh, and enjoy. Welcome to the show. Uh, joining me, Walter Egan, a man of many bands and many many different songs in the, in the music industry. Walter, how you doing? I'm great. Good to be with you, Alex. It's good to have you here. Like, uh, reading about you, I'm almost a little overwhelmed because, like, you know, there's Magnet and Steel, there's the Malibus, but let's kind of, let's start at the beginning. Like, what inspires you to become, like, a singer-songwriter and pick up an instrument? I've been exploring that myself. This summer, I've been writing my uh, life story in a book. Nice. And, uh, I'm up to 1997 at the moment. Um, it, it, uh, there's no precedent for it, except for the fact that my parents were creative people. They were, if you've ever seen um, Mad Men, that's kind of what I grew up in. It's okay. Like the advertising business world. My mother was the copy director. My stepfather was the the artist, art director. Yeah. And so they were very creative people, and they encouraged me to be creative. Once I got a guitar in my hands, I started the way everybody does. You make some chords, and you see, well, I have to do scales. What is that? I would get bored by that. And so I would start making up songs, like right off the bat. What inspired me to write my first song was the uh, the classic uh, leader of the pack. Oh, I love that song. And uh, I met I met Mary Weiss from Shangri-Las at one of these things a few years back, and I told her that, and she said, "Oh God, couldn't you have picked a better song to be inspired by?" <laughs> I said, "Well, actually, no, because it was that the very 
a low common denominator of that song that made me feel like, oh, I can do that. And so I was about, uh, I think I was maybe 16 when I wrote my first song. And it was this tearjerker, teen angst song called The Teenage Morgue. Which, as, as yeah, it was directly inspired by that. Um, and then it went on when I realized I could impress my girlfriend by writing songs about her. But what really inspired me to keep going was my friend, John Zambetti. He and I were in the same class. Loyola was named by high school. And uh, we had a little private area that we were able to get together and play guitars together. And eventually, he said, get an electric guitar, you can be in the band. And so that was the start of that thing. But, but he was starting to write songs at the same time. So I would write a song and I'd play it for him. And he'd say, he'd come in the next day and say, here's, here's what I wrote. And it became this friendly competition. And I think that got the ball rolling as far as doing it. And, and you know, having a sympathetic audience for your creation often leads you to want to do it more. And so I think that's how that came about. But yeah, I always think of myself as a songwriter, first and foremost, even though, of course, I had to learn guitar, teach myself guitar, really in order to be able to play songs. But eventually that led me to having to sing as well, because right. you, know, you write a song, you've got to sing it to somebody, to teach it to them at least. And so that all went hand in hand. And um, I, the habit was started, and it hasn't stopped. You know, it's been a long time now. Yeah, you, you've been quite prolific because they keep coming. Yeah, and there's more in the can. I was just discussing. I have a new album that came out this year called Fascination. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think I oh, I'd love to hear this. Um, yeah, if you'll play it, I'll give you one. Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, my goodness. The cover girl there is Pamela DeVar. Oh, that is her. And, yes, and she's here today. Wow. Which is kind of funny and ironic. But yeah, Pamela became an object of my infatuation. <laughs> a few years ago, when my daughter told me how much she loved her book. So, that went along to uh, inspire me to write actually all the songs on that, on that album. But yeah, I've got the, yep. a lot of songs in the can. I've been talking to the guy who put that out. It's a label from England called Red Steel. And um, hopefully the new, the next album will be coming out next year. Okay. This awesome. is like my 14th album. That's hard to believe, I know. That's great. I love it when people like keep creating because I sometimes feel like with artists from your era, there's almost an attitude of like, well, if it's not going to sell a bunch, you know, like, why should I even bother? But I love people that when it's in your blood, like obviously you do this because you have to. It keeps you going. It's true. You know, it it does wear you out. The frustration of the music business can easily lead to. Uh, dropping out and doing something else. I was lucky that I had the success with Magnet and Steel that somehow sustained me through these years. If only as a carrot dangling in front of me going, you know, that took me an hour to write that song. I'll do it again. So you always feel like you can do it again. 
Boy, does that feel like a segue for my questions. <laughs> Speaking of Megan Steele, I thought it's kind of funny. So you mentioned the songs on your new album. You know, they're kind of, you know, inspired by Pamela DeBar in a way. Like, there was some infatuation there. I remember seeing Malibu's Live, and I don't remember if you did Megan Steele that night, but you oh, mentioned you mentioned um, meeting Stevie Nicks and becoming quite smitten with the kitten. Yes, that, that, with the kitten, that was exactly yeah. what you said. Yeah. So, uh, so like it's safe me. to say that song is about her, isn't it? Well, I've made a career out of writing songs about uh, my unrequited loves, <laughs> and uh, so far it's working out pretty well. I'd say, um, yeah. But, yeah, no, it, uh, Stevie, uh, I was lucky enough to have Stevie and Lindsay produce my first album in Columbia. It's called Fundamental World. And that was when they were kind of, you know, at odds. Yeah. And so it took a little balancing and it took a little kind of working around Fleetwood Mac's schedule. But uh, I was really pleased with the result. And so was Lindsay, and that's why he agreed to do the next album. We all thought it would be better if Stevie wasn't involved in the production. <laughs> She's singing on like so she over came. half the album? Yeah, well, she did. And then, you know, there's a video that you can find on YouTube called Blonde and the Blue T-Bird, which yeah. is a song from that album. Stevie playing the blonde and the blue T-Bird. Me getting to act out my uh, rock and roll fantasies there. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was a wonderful thing. Yeah, no, I've been a very fortunate person in the record business, just kind of blindly making a decision that, well, I'm going to go to California. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, go with this or go with that. And it's worked out really well for me in a lot of ways. You know, of course, September of 78, I did a tour with Tom Petty and his family. At that point, I had had the top 40, top 10 success, and he had had the album success. And so we were trying to get a little bit of what the other was giving. We swapped each night. One night he'd open for me, next night I'd open for him. You know, I look at this as this kind of watershed moment in my career, I suppose, where, you know, Tom went on to become the icon, yeah. and I became the, the footnote and the answer in Crossword Puzzles, which, you know, I'm not complaining. I, I, I'm happy to be alive, happy to be still creating, happy to have a family, and I love my kids, and I love to be able to do the things I do. I'm a painter. I've had a few painting exhibits over the last few years, so, you know, I enjoy life. People tell me I look younger than I am. I'm appreciative of that. You know, so. <laughs> That's always got to feel good. It is, yeah. Although, you know, I was watching a show about the, uh, the beginning of the New York Mets. Yeah. And uh, Casey Stengel, when he, they asked him how old he was, they said, well, at my age, most people are dead. Most people my age are dead. <laughs> and so I'm getting to that point, but I'm not quite there yet. But yeah, it's, uh, I think rock and roll keeps me young. And, uh, you know, I'm a substitute teacher in a high school. I think yeah. that keeps me young, too. Although I, it ages a lot of teachers. <laughs> I truly believe rock and roll does keep you young. I, I believe that with all my heart. Yeah. I want to ask you, I want to go back to Not Shy for a second. Sure. And you worked with Lindsay and Stevie on that album and a lot of LA musicians. And to me, like, I, I'm a guy that loves to read liner notes and stuff. And I'm really realizing, you know, that late 70s era. Everybody was playing on everybody's stuff. Like, you open up a Warren Zevon album, and like, oh, there's Carl Wilson, Don Henley, Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Waddy Wachtel, everybody. 
So what, what was that scene like? Like, did you really like get to like dive into that too? Not that much, actually. Surprisingly, I've always really appreciated having a band and working with people that I believe in. I had sort of formed a band out in Claremont, thinking I was living in LA, but I was like 40 miles away. Um, the best drummer in town was a guy named John Ware, and he, of course, hear it on Linda's albums and Andy Lou's albums, Michael Nesmith's albums. He's an amazing drummer, really solid. And so he played on my first album. My bass player, John Self, I played with Johnny Tillotson, the Bellamy Brothers, but he wasn't like a well-known session guy. He and I did a session for Don Henley on his weird, obscure album called Glenda Griffith, where we both played on the song, I Can't Dance. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, you know, later on, it was more my friends that were participating on my albums. I was lucky enough to have Nicky Hopkins play keyboards on my fifth album. Um, Christine McVie sang on my album. Jackson sang on one of my albums. Um, but uh, David Lindley famously played the slide part and the electric fiddle on uh, my, my last charted hit. A song called Full Moon Fire. Nice. Which, uh, again, you can find the video of that on YouTube. That, that got undermined around the top 40 by uh, Record Politics and a guy named oh. Irving Azar, which is too long a story to go into. I feel like every time the name Irving Azoff com comes up, there's some kind of weirdness of what. Well, Irving uh, undercut my career at Backstreet Records, which was Tom's label. Um, and ironically, he's now uh, Lindsay's manager. So, not only that, but my favorite, rest my favorite restaurant in West LA is called the Apple Pan. And it's just this great old hamburger joint in Westwood. And Irving bought the bleeping <laughs> record place. And so now I'm always torn whenever I go there. It's like, oh, gosh. Yeah, I got to go because I love this place. So, yeah, you know, I always feel like Irving misunderstood me somewhere along the line. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. My career has sort of skirted all the more famous people. Yeah. And yet I've had that record that people know. Okay, I do writer's nights here in Nashville where I play that song. Undoubtedly, people will come up to me and tell me, God, I love that song so much. And who did that? You know, oh. It's like, oh, you know, I did it. So, uh, you know, in some ways I enjoyed going under the radar as I have. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like I am the peer of uh, Nick Lowe, of Jackson Brown, of, uh, for that matter, Elvis Costello, you know. Uh, those are people of my era that have some sort of similar vibes, yeah. and only people who are wise like you know about me. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned the video for Full Moon Fire. I got to ask you about. Uh, so you popped up in a video I didn't expect to see you, but I watched a music video recently for uh, Trouble by Lindsey Buckingham, and you're part of this like guitar army that's in the video. Yes. It's such a strange little video. It's like all white and kind of like foggy. Do you remember filming that? Thing? I do, in fact, because I was writing about it in my book not too long ago. Yeah, it, uh, 
You know, Lindsay uh, and I were good friends in that time, and uh, it was his concept to have a line of drummers going back and a line of guitar players in the middle. And, uh, you know, I relented and told him I would wear white for his video. But it's one of the rare times you'll see me wearing white at any time video. But yeah, it was, uh, it was in the sound stage down in Hollywood. And, uh, just a real fun thing to do. Uh, people are always wondering who the people are in the, in the video. And um, most of them were, if you don't know, like Bob Welsh is standing right behind me. Yep. And, uh, but the other guys are like roadies and friends of Lindsay's. Uh, and so it's, it's funny, people sometimes post pictures, you know, I forget who they think it is, uh, White Twilly. White Twilly is not in that video. But yeah, no, that was a, that was a fun video to do. And uh, like you mentioned the video for Full Moon Fire, which came out in 83. It has me taking my girlfriend to the movies, turning into a werewolf, running a muck and look and then uh, turning back into myself. Thriller, anyone? And, uh, this was eight months before Thriller. And so, you know, I'm not saying that Michael Jackson stole my video, but there is a real similarity there. I'm only saying that. I gotta look that up. I've never seen that video, man. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's a fun video. It has my band and my my in-laws dressed as vampires and hunchbacks. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Early MTV is just a bastion of like, I feel like the early video era, and maybe even collaborate with this, it was just kind of like, oh, fuck, what do we do with this format? What are we supposed to do? Yeah, well, that was the weird thing. You know, Les Garland, before he became vice president of MTV, was head of the West Coast uh, office for Atlantic Records. And after I got out of the Columbia deal, he was making overtures to us to sign with Atlantic. Yeah. Ultimately, we signed with Backstreet. But, uh, when Les went to uh, MTV, I was staying in touch with him, and I, they got the rights to the Shindig shows. <laughs> and I said, I'll do a show where it compares music of then to music now. And, you know. and he said, well, that's a good idea, but how about coming in and being a fill-in VJ for Martha Quinn? So in June of 84, I did a week as Martha Quinn on MTV, but they wouldn't let me play my videos. They had to program their own program. So the best I could do was sneak a picture of me and my wife on the set from our, our recent marriage. But yeah, it, uh, you know, it's one of those weird little corners of my career where yeah. I think I was the third fill-in DJ on MTV. But again, I'm the footnote in history. You know, Stevie is a chapter and more in my book, but I was more of a footnote if I'm lucky in her book. So. Yeah, it's great to be part of all that. It's really amazing. I got two more questions, man. The ultimate cult figure. Absolutely. I got two more questions. I wanted to ask you about your time in spirit a little bit, especially because Malibu's do such a great version of I Got a Line on Here. Oh, yeah. Well, spirit came about because our keyboard player from Malibu, Scott Monahan, had been playing keyboards with Randy and Ed as a trio for spirit. And he came to me one day and said, Randy's talking about getting a bass player. 
you know, would you like to play bass for it? I mean, that was a period where my son had just been born. Another weird little corner of my life was I was doing a quiz shows as a contestant during that time. And yeah. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I love spirit. I love spirit. So I became the bass player. It was like 86 through about 89. It's almost three years that I played. And uh, it, was, it was a trip. Um, Ed was some 62 or 63 at that point. So he was kind of like our father sometimes. Well, he was actually Randy's stepfather for a while anyway. So, and Randy uh, was the tour manager. And he was very, very um, mysterious about being the tour manager. Where are we going to stay today, Randy? We'll figure it out. And so... Uh, it was uh, it was really fun for me to be able to play that music. The good thing about my life and my career is that I've been able to have a part in all the kinds of music that I love. Because as a songwriter, I love all these different genres of music. Uh, I got to be guitar player in Randy and the Rainbows, who did Denise. That was in the 90s in New York. Um, of course, I played in the burritos, a few different forms of the burritos. And, um, you know, back called Brooklyn Cowboys. I rehearsed with Jackson Brown for his Late for the Sky tour before he wanted me to do a lot of harmonies. And at that point, I was very insecure harmony singer, so we both knew it was not going to last. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it's been real fortunate, but, but with spirit, it uh, opened me up to, you know, a, a branch of music, this kind of jazzy fusion rock thing that was pretty far away from the kind of stuff I was doing. Yeah. Um, by the end of my tenure there, we were learning a couple of my songs, one called Only Love Is Left Alive, which came out on my album, the Mad Dog album, also known as the Lost album, um, which uh, Randy plays on, he, but he, the song he plays on is not that song. Christine McVie sings with me on that song. But yeah, it, uh, it was just a fun exercise for me. And at the time, I needed the work. You know, I was uh, happy yeah. to, because I had been a stay-at-home dad for my son, who was born in 85. And I loved that. And I loved my son. But I missed playing and I missed being on the road. So, you know, this was an opportunity to go back and visit my earlier life a little bit. Nice. So, thank you so much, Walter. This has been a lot of fun. I always like to end it on a, a positive note, and that would be uh, I always ask for like a funny tour story. It doesn't matter what band it is, solo, spirit, uh, whomever, just like a funny incident or like cool moment that like, really sticks out in your brain from all these years. Hmm. Um, I was doing a show in Knoxville one time in 1978, and then. Uh, I came back to my dressing room. There was a guy named Orson Bean in my dressing room, who was an actor that used to be on What's My Line and all these things. I thought that was a weird, funny moment. Um, you know, some of the moments that I'd like to tell you about are probably better left unsaid. Um, but uh, I'll probably think of one, you know, 10 minutes from now. But yeah, um, boy. Uh, we did a gig as the Malibus once in high school, and uh, we 
we were on the bill with a guy named Lee Reynolds, who was the writer of the song Crossing the Tournament. Oh, cool. Which was always one of my favorite songs. We got to talk to him later, and he said, Whatever you do, don't go into the music business. So, <laughs> I took that, uh, took that to heart. Uh, oh, anyway. man. Well, Walter, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, one last thing. Where, where can people like keep track of what you're doing? Like, What's the best way to do that? Um, this place is my Facebook page. I have a couple of Facebook pages. For the new album, it's called Walter Egan Official. And that, uh, my personal page is Walter Lindsay Egan. And uh, I'm usually keeping up with that. I'm working on getting my website up to date. Uh, my old webmaster yeah. is uh, doing other things these days, so I'm kind of uh, really dormant there with my. But yeah, that's the best place to do it. It's, uh, awesome. Everybody, go check that out. And everybody, check out Fascination. I myself will be checking out Fascination when I get back to San Diego. So, Walter, it's been a blast. Thanks again. My pleasure. All right.
Thank you for listening to the Sly Dog Music Cast. If you want to know what's going on, follow me on Twitter at Sly Dog Music Cast or Facebook at Sly Dog Music Cast. Thanks again for listening. Peace, love, and music.